Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to thank all of our fans out there. We cannot do this without you. Please be sure to leave us a positive review and tell a friend about us. The more you share our podcast, the bigger we become. We have surpassed a million downloads, and it's all because of you. And now, it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. We hope you've been enjoying our series on mysteries involving astronauts from Ohio. In part one, we covered some incidents that were experienced by our Buckeye spacemen that had people questioning whether they had found evidence of extraterrestrial life. In part two, we shared the story of the top secret effort by NASA scientists to put women in space back in the 1960s, including a highly qualified school teacher from Akron named Jean Hickson. In part three tonight, we have two more stories. We'll start with a look at a couple of debates that have evolved from the famous words Neil Armstrong uttered when he stepped foot on the moon. And we'll close out with Cleveland-born Jim Lovell, who commanded the flight of an Apollo mission that was unlucky enough to be numbered 13. Neil Armstrong. You know this guy, the gentle, soft-spoken farm boy from Wapakoneta over in Auglaize County. Definitely in the top 10 of most famous Ohioans ever, and probably on the list of most famous Americans ever. Armstrong was the commander of Apollo 11, the three-man team that went to the moon. The plan called for Neil and Edwin Buzz Aldrin to land a lunar module called the Eagle and walk about the moon's surface 
while the mission's pilot, Michael Collins, would stay above the surface in the command module. Armstrong was the first man to leave the Eagle. On July 20, 1969, at exactly 10.56 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Armstrong put his left foot on the moon and famously declared, As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. If you were growing up at this time, you were probably doing what I did, standing outside, staring at the moon, and imagining Neil up there getting dust on his moon boots. Now, over the years, a couple of mysteries have developed about the words he uttered. For starters, people always wondered what inspired him to say it. For decades, people debated this. After all, those words didn't come out of thin air, right? So what was Neil drawing from when he came up with such an iconic phrase? I don't think I'm exaggerating here when I say it turned out to be one of the most famous quotes in mankind's history. Well, for a long time, there were people who argued that Armstrong had revealed himself to be a fan of The Hobbit. In that J.R.R. Tolkien classic, there is a point where the hero, Bilbo Baggins, becomes invisible and jumps over the villain Gollum and says, not a great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Armstrong's biographer, James Hansen, said people who favored this theory thought they got confirmation of it when Armstrong and his family moved to a farm in Lebanon, Ohio, that's in Warren County, and they dubbed it Rivendell. For heaven's sakes, that's the name of the elven home in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series. So Hansen asked Armstrong about this. But Neil said, no, it, it couldn't have been that. He didn't even pick up the Tolkien books until after his Apollo 11 moonwalking mission. So back to the drawing board. Some people came forward and said, hey, Neil must have been influenced by a NASA memo he had seen earlier that year. Willis Shapley, an associate deputy administrator at NASA headquarters, was offering guidance on symbolic activities the astronauts should do after their moon landing. And he wrote, the manner in which they are presented to the world should be to signalize the first lunar landing as a historic step forward for all mankind. Well, Neil certainly must have been thinking about that memo. But Armstrong said, no, it couldn't have been that. He didn't even remember seeing that memo. Neil told his biographer Hansen that there was no particular writing or comment that he drew from. Here's what he said. What can you say when you step off of something? Well, something about a step. It just sort of evolved during the period that I was doing the procedures of the practice takeoff and the EVA prep and all the other activities that were on our flight schedule at that time. So, as it turns out, our farm boy from Wapakoneta just had a little bit of a poet in him. Here's the other mystery about that phrase, and this is a debate you might be more familiar with. The way it's stated, 
as brilliant as it is, is grammatically a problem. The word man with the article a in front of it means a single man. If you leave off the a, then the word man is plural, as in mankind. So grammatically, the sentence that Neil Armstrong said is the very same as saying, that's one small step for mankind, one giant leap for mankind. Now, what would have fixed this problem is for Neil to say, one small step for a man. Here's the thing. Neil said he always intended to say the word a and believes he did. Actually, when he returned to Earth and saw the transcript, he tried to get it corrected. But it's hard to correct history. Everyone heard man, not a man. And that's how it has been accepted and repeated for more than 50 years. Leave it to modern-day research to try and come to the rescue. In 2006, an Australian computer programmer, Peter Shan Ford, put the audio from that mission into a software program that disabled people use to communicate using nerve impulses. And he said in that program, he detected the missing uh. You can't actually hear it. It happened too quickly. But the program records what he called a voice print. And in that 35,000th of a second before the word man, there is a voice print that indicates something was uttered. Neil Armstrong lived long enough to be vindicated by this. He died on August the 25th, 2012, at the age of 82. The year after his death, in 2013, a team from Ohio State University and Michigan State University were analyzing the speaking patterns of Ohioans, and they found out that in the area of Wapakoneta, where Neil grew up, the Article A is often unheard. It sounds like it's been left off because it gets mangled into the previous word. So try this experiment with me. Use the word for a. Instead of saying one small step for a man, say one small step for a man. Now, say Neil's quote in a normal speed. One small step for a man. There. I just said a man, and I didn't even hear myself saying ah. So with that in mind, here's Neil again. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I swear, when I think of the word for a instead of for a, I can hear Neil say the whole thing. Anyway, even before he died, Armstrong alluded to the fact that that might be what happened. Here's what he told the biographer Hansen. I can't recapture it. For people who have listened to me for hours on the radio communications tapes, they know I left a lot of syllables out. It was not unusual for me to do that. 
I'm not particularly articulate. Perhaps it was a suppressed sound that didn't get picked up by the voice mic. As I have listened to it, it doesn't sound like there was time there for there to be a word there. Certainly, the uh was intended because that's the only way the statement makes any sense. So I would hope that history would grant me leeway for dropping the syllable and understand that it was certainly intended, even if it wasn't said, although it actually might have been. Now, in a 2012 documentary, Neil's brother said that while playing the board game Risk a few months before that historic flight, Neil passed him a piece of paper with a line written down and said, what do you think about that? Dean told him it was fabulous. The line Armstrong wrote down said, amen. But even this memory is a mystery. Neil's biographer, Hansen, said he knew Dean for 40 years, and in all that time, he had never mentioned this to him. So, who knows? This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Do you think the number 13 holds a special power? For centuries, some cultures have believed this to be a very unlucky number. So, we're adding one last mystery tonight. The near-tragic flight of Apollo 13 in April of 1970. If you know this history, or maybe you at least saw the Tom Hanks movie by that name, then you know how close we came to losing the entire crew. The mission was commanded by Jim Lovell, a native of Cleveland, Ohio, on his fourth trip into space. James Arthur Lovell Jr. was the only child of Blanche and James Lovell Sr. Sr. was a coal furnace salesman who died when Jim was just five years old. He and his mother moved in with relatives after that and eventually relocated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he became an Eagle Scout and began his lifelong affair with rockets. Jim tried out for the first class of astronauts, the Mercury 7, but a temporary oddity in his blood test kept him out. In 1962, when he learned NASA was recruiting for the Gemini and Apollo classes, he decided to try again, and this time his tests were perfect. Jim flew on Gemini 7 in 1965 and Gemini 12 in 1966. He flew on Apollo 8 in 1968. That was the first mission to reach the moon. And now, here he was on Apollo 13, his first chance to land and walk on the lunar surface. Jim was traveling with a couple of space rookies, Jack Swigert from Colorado, 
and Fred Hayes of Mississippi. Hayes was a former Ohio resident himself. He worked as a research pilot at NASA's Lewis Research Center near Cleveland, and he was also chief of a tactical fighter squadron at the Air National Guard base in Mansfield. Now, the crew was originally scheduled to do a trip to the moon as Apollo 14, but the original trio of Apollo 13 needed more training, so Lovell was asked if his team could move up in the rotation. Sure, why not, Lovell replied. What could possibly be the difference between Apollo 13 and Apollo 14? Of course, the number appeared to have at least given Marilyn Lovell a little bit of pause. Jim told the story of when he went home that night to tell his wife he was now doing Apollo 13. Thirteen? she asked warily. Jim shrugged it off with a laugh and said, Well, it comes after twelve. Thirteen is a number feared by enough people that there are hotels and office buildings that skip naming the 13th floor. Years ago, I did a survey in Akron and found several of the downtown high-risers missing the 13th floor. And there are otherwise reasonable people who will opt to stay home on Friday nights that fall on the 13th of the month. If the fear of the number 13 gets too bad, there's even a medical term for it, triskaidekaphobia. Now, if the name Apollo 13 wasn't bad enough, NASA had the nerve to launch it at 1.13 p.m. in the time zone of ground control in Houston. And in military time, that made it 13.13. Lovell did not believe in superstitions at all, but later he had to admit Apollo 13 was plagued by bad omens from the start. In 2020, he told a reporter from Astronomy.com, One by one, now that I look back, I can see the things that occurred that told me, hey, something's going to happen here. For starters, Just days before the launch, the entire crew was exposed to rubella. Astronaut Ken Mattingly was the only one not immune from prior exposure, so they had to swap him out at the last minute with Jack Swigert. Also, though the crew didn't know this, even before they left the ground, their would-be killer was already cocked and loaded. There was an oxygen tank on board, which had been dropped on the manufacturing floor years earlier, causing a flaw that was not detected by the Apollo 13 ground crew in preparation of this flight. When the tank was filled with oxygen just before liftoff, it had become a bomb waiting to go off. And 200,000 miles into space, It did just that. When Lovell heard the oxygen tank explode, he looked at Fred Hayes. Fred was a bit of a prankster. In training, he had pulled on an oxygen valve before and caused it to make a loud noise. So Lovell thought maybe he was up to his old shenanigans. But, said Lovell, 
I looked up at him, and his eyes were as wide as saucers. I could tell. He said, it's not me. Then, of course, things started to happen. History has reduced this moment to a famous phrase. Houston, we have a problem. Here's the actual audio when Apollo 13 announces to the ground crew that something bad is going on. Mrs. Houston, say again, please. Within three hours of this icebreaker, the astronauts not only lost their oxygen stores, but the ability to generate water and power. The spaceship was dying. And we had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning there. Plans to get to the moon were out of the question. The only thing that mattered was trying to figure out how to get the men back to Earth. O2, quantity number two is zero. That's AC, okay. Yeah, that's, that's because of AC. And it looks to me, looking out the uh, hatch, that we are bending something. We are, uh, we are venting something out uh, into the uh, space. Roger, we copy your venting. Long story short here, they climbed into the lunar module. That's a temporary craft that was never designed to return to Earth's atmosphere. But it was the only thing that still had oxygen in it. They had to move the guidance system from the command module into that lunar module. And then, combining every brain cell of the men in space with every brain cell of the ground team. They worked together to figure out how to use the lunar module as their lifeboat. Lovell and his shipmates had to make a hundred adjustments to propel that lunar module back to Earth. These were on-the-spot inventions using cardboard and plastic and tape They had to do it in the freezing cold because they had no heat. And because the lunar module had no inner walls, condensation coated everything in water. They had to keep drying instruments with towels. If any one of those adjustments failed, it would have meant their deaths. Here's the coverage of Apollo 13's re-entrance into Earth's atmosphere and its splashdown into the Pacific as it played out on live TV before a transfixed world. We've eliminated some gaps of long silence and tried to condense this from its original seven minutes to about four minutes. We're now coming to the moment, the last moments of Apollo 13, as it comes in, as it begins its re-entry. The best thing we can do now is just to listen and hope. The last few seconds down to re-entry. At this point, there's very little anybody can do, including the astronauts, except wait as they come in through the uppermost fringes of the Earth's atmosphere. The computers put them on course. All anybody can do now is cross their fingers. Apollo Control, Houston, uh, we've just had loss of signal uh, from uh, Honeysuckle. Uh, 
and they are coming in faster than predicted. They're coming in just about as fast as any spacecraft has returned from space before. The last few seconds now to re-entry, and they've lost them on the main radio contact antenna in Australia at Honeysuckle Creek. Just about now, they should be going through the moment of maximum heat. And we'll only know whether or not that heat shield was damaged by the explosion three days ago. About 30 seconds to go to the end of radio blackout About now. 30 seconds to go uh, for blackout. Less than 10 seconds now, uh, we will attempt to uh, contact Apollo 13 uh, through one of the Araya aircraft. Continuing to monitor this Apollo Control Houston. We've had a report that Araya 4 aircraft uh, has acquisition of signal. Odyssey Houston standing by, over. Okay, we read you, Jack. That was uh, Jim Lovell responding with the OK Joe. Correction there, that was Command Module Pilot Jack Swagger. We're looking at the weather on TV and it looks just as advertised, real good. Less than two minutes now from time of drogue deployment. That drogue deployment that he's talking about is the point at which the very small parachutes come out that then drag up the main parachutes. They have been seen before those drogue parachutes come out on previous missions, but today all we can be certain of is that everybody's watching for those small red and white parachutes to come out to signal the final safety stage of this flight. The main parachutes. Let's not anticipate. But the heat shield obviously worked. You should see something any time now. Odyssey Houston, uh, standing by for your uh, now 67. Uh, when you get it, over. Shoot, should be out. A report of uh, two good drogues coming up now for main shoots. Standing by for confirmation of uh, main shoots. There they are. There they are. They've made it. Yeah. All three shoots out. Listen to the crowd on the boat. The mains, it really looks great. Uh, we have a report uh, from the Iwo Jima that Apollo 13 uh, at a distance of four miles from the ship. Four miles. Uh, the smoke you see is a uh, binning of RCS uh, propellants, a uh, reaction control system propellants. And they're in. They're in, and I make it no more, no more than five seconds late. No more than five seconds late. We had splashed out. Three and a half miles from Iwo Jima. And they've landed the right way up. So, if you believe the number 13 to be unlucky, you might think Apollo 13 was always fated to have a problem. But after witnessing the miraculous recovery by the ship and its crew, one could argue that Apollo 13 finally broke the curse. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. 
Also, check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.